there weren't any roads to speak of. It was just dirt, sand, sagebrush, that's all there was. And they had these black tar papered barracks spotted all over the place, and that's it. That was our home, and uh, it looked desolate, and it looked dusty to me. Frank Kikuchi and his family were incarcerated at Manzanar, a camp in the California desert. Like most of the camps where Japanese Americans were held, the buildings were a slapdash job. Lumber was scarce. So the barracks were often built with wood planks that were still green. The boards shrank as they dried, letting in sand and dust. And the winds at Manzanar could be relentless. We had sand just covering us in the morning. Uh, You know, when we got up, our faces would be grimy, and all around the windows there would be piles of sand where it came into the cracks. When winter hit, we were really amazed because snow fell, the wind blew, and it was cold. Shizuko Sakai and her family ended up at Heart Mountain, a camp in the high plains of Wyoming. There was one coal-burning stove in each unit for heat. These barracks were not insulated, of course, and every time the snow fell, the next morning when you woke up, there were ridges of snow within your unit. Uh, The window sills would be piled with snow and areas around the window and around the doors would all be icy. Conditions were grim. People had no idea how long they'd be imprisoned. Months? Years? This was a time to persevere in the face of the unendurable and to do so with dignity. The Japanese term for that is gamang. We made do. From APM Reports and the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, this is Order 9066, a podcast series about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. I'm Pat Suzuki. In this chapter, we're going to hear how people in the camps practiced gamang through work, school, and ways of passing the time. Most of the camps were run by the newly created War Relocation Authority. The top camp administrators were all white, but with 120,000 people living behind the barbed wire, there was a lot of work for the incarcerees to do. To operate the camp, they had various jobs, and I helped at the warehouse on loading trucks and so forth, the rations that were brought in, and I worked at the butcher shop for a while. Isami Nakao was imprisoned at Manzanar along with the woman he would marry, Kazuko. She started out as a typist in the camp clinic where all of the camp's food workers got medical screenings. So they'd come in for a physical and everything. Issei's and the Nisei doctors were having very difficult time communicating. Issei is the Japanese term for first-generation immigrants to America. Japanese is their native language. Second-generation people, folks born in the U.S., we call Nisei. Some speak fluent Japanese, others less so. And I would be sitting there listening, and I get very, very jittery and nervous because they're not communicating well. So I just 
jumped up and I started to interpret. And ever since I was, I started doing that, and I really enjoyed it. And I learned lots of Japanese words, you know, the medical terms. And so it was very educational for me, and I really loved it. Being able to love your work was lucky. A lot of jobs were tedious and hard. With about ten thousand mouths to feed in a given camp, food service was a big enterprise. Rudy Tokiwa had learned to cook in the mess hall at the Salinas Assembly Center. So when he got to the post on incarceration camp, where a head cook was needed, his teenage buddies urged him to take the job. But Poston was out in the Arizona desert. Summertime temperatures soared well past a hundred degrees, and the stoves burned coal. And so I said, "No, no, no way! I ain't gonna cook in this heat. No way! It's not like you got gas burning stoves or something like that. You know, you're what you're cooking in coal. You know." After he said that, Rudy's friends drifted away quietly. Then they sent a more influential contingent to lobby him. So about an hour later, there comes all the old people, and they start talking to me in Japanese, and they said, "You know, please, we have to have somebody cooking." And you know, as old men, real old, and we can't take this. It's going to have to be you young guys. Rudy was fourteen at the time. The old fellows appealed to his sense of duty. They used the expression "onegaishimasyo." An especially polite way to say please. The old timers all said, "Onegaishimasu." Uh, oh well, guess I gotta go. You know. Much of the camp food came from cans, so the incarcerees quickly set their sights on fresh food. Many Japanese Americans in the camps were farmers. A lot of them were especially skilled at growing crops on marginal land, and among the camp residents, there was also a wide range of technical and scientific expertise. James Ito, for example. James Ito, who was the first guy in charge of the agriculture program, he was a soil scientist. Dakota Russell is the museum manager at the Heart Mountain Interpretive Center, a museum on the site of the former camp. He was the first guy who was let outside of the barbed wire fence, so he could walk the project and see where the best farmland was. And he was taking soil samples with him and sending them out for testing. The farmers planted peas, beans, cabbages, carrots, cantaloupe, watermelon, and more. James Ito, when he is starting out with this, he finds himself a seed guy. Who's been incarcerated here at the camp, um, and he send, has this guy send away for his whole stock of seeds from his store. That included Japanese vegetables like burdock root, azuki beans, and mizuna greens. The growing season was short in the high plains, just three months, so the farmers developed ways to adapt. They germinated seeds indoors and covered young plants in the fields with protective caps to provide warmth. There's nothing like fresh vegetables from the field. Edward Sakuya was an agricultural statistician at Heart Mountain. We had 1,500 acres of, of all around the camp, outside the barbed wire fence. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had 30 acres of cucumber and melon under hot caps. We grew beautiful tomatoes, beautiful daikon. We had so much daikon that we didn't know what to do with them. The cooks at Heart Mountain took their bumper crop of daikon radishes and made a huge batch of tsukemono, pickled radishes. 
In fact, the vegetable harvest at Heart Mountain was so abundant, they shipped their excess produce to other incarceration camps. The incarcerated Japanese Americans did all kinds of jobs. There were doctors and nurses, ditch diggers and dishwashers, mechanics and carpenters, teachers and garbage collectors. My mother was an assistant cook. She made $16 a month. $16 a month. Mas Hashimoto's family was at Poston in Arizona. Professional people, doctors and administrators, get $19 a month. And then uh, the part-time workers got $12 a month. And the pay was based on the military. Nobody was to make more than a private in the Army. And a private in the Army made $21. But we needed the money. The question is why. One reason, the Hashimoto family owned a home in Watsonville, California. Even while in camp, they had to keep current on their taxes or risk losing it. And incarcerated people also needed money to buy clothes and other necessities. They made heavy use of mail-order catalogs from stores like Sears and Montgomery Ward. And when they couldn't buy what they needed, the people in camp improvised. Jane Oka's parents were farmers, used to working with their hands. Her dad made furniture. He had to handsaw everything. And yet he made beds for us. He made chest of drawers, he made chairs, tables, and and he even made folding chairs. And Jane's mother could sew. In fact, a white friend of a family drove more than 500 miles from Salinas, California, to deliver her mom's sewing machine. One of the things that my mom wanted to do was to make comforters. And so my dad planted cotton between the barracks. He also made a hand roller to take the seeds out. And so that's what we did as kids. We rolled this thing and took all the seeds out. You have to really respect the resourcefulness of the Japanese Americans who were held here. Again, Dakota Russell of Hard Mountain. Because almost as soon as they arrived, they started to improve things, to try and make things better at the camp. Like any American community, Japanese Americans set up athletic leagues. You had people playing baseball. This is historian Alice Yang from the University of California. They had musical groups, choirs, dances. It doesn't mean that they weren't victimized. It means that their way of responding was to try to create as normal an existence as possible. That was an attempt to counter the sense of, you know, the sense of being in a prison camp. All of the activity in camp was watched over by military police and guard towers. But there were opportunities to get out beyond the barbed wire. At Minidoka in Idaho, the camp's fire department was largely manned by Japanese Americans. Shosuke Sasaki says at the height of the fire season, the Interior Department recruited them to help battle wildfires in other parts of the region. Most of those fires in the summer were light, started by lightning. And being wartime, they didn't have enough men to put on a fire line. So they, they used to come into camp and ask us to 
volunteer to engage in firefighting. And for doing that, we got 50 cents an hour. They liked our work so much, they said, you're the best firefighting crews we've have ever had. So they gave us a merit raise of 10 cents an hour. Sasaki enjoyed getting out of camp. Sometimes the crews would stop on their way back to do some shopping, and there was one fire he regretted missing out on. The fire started near a hot spring, and when the fellows got out there, the fire had died down by itself, and the boys had a grand time taking a bath in those hot spring waters. With the wartime labor shortage, there was other work outside camp. And these jobs often paid the prevailing wage so people could make more money than inside camp. Some people labored in sawmills. There was factory work canning peas and bottling ketchup. And in the fall, a large number of incarcerated people helped local farmers with the harvest. In 1942 alone, roughly 10,000 Japanese Americans were released from camp temporarily to do agricultural work. It was back-breaking work. Art Abe found himself cutting off the tops of sugar beets as he harvested them in Idaho. I never knew how difficult it would be. You'd be bent over all day long, and a truck would come by and you'd pick it up, throw it in a truck. Abe and his crew slept in an old railroad boxcar on the farm. They had to cook their own food, but there was a problem with white people in the nearby town. There was a butcher shop that uh, that wouldn't sell us anything. And there was a barber in town that had a sign, no Japs, in the window. They had two grocery stores. None of them would sell us any groceries. When the fellas went into town one evening to see a movie, the local sheriff chased them off. So we went back and told the field manager, if this is the way you guys are going to treat us, you go pick your own crop. They were just one of the crews from Camp Minidoka harvesting beets in the region. If all the crews quit, it would be a disaster for the local community. And so the, all the farmers got together, and they went to the sheriff, and I says, these guys are helping us. And the sheriff was a elected position, so he backed off. And so we were able to go to the movies after that. Another job in the camps was writing or editing the camp newspaper. All 10 camps had one. There was the Topaz Times, the Roar Outpost, the Minidoka Irrigator, and the Granada Pioneer. Each paper was overseen by an employee of the War Relocation Authority. The overseer at Hart Mountain heard that Bill Hoskawa was a professional journalist, so he invited Hoskawa to start a paper. And we had many conversations. How do you publish a free newspaper in a concentration camp? And we knew that we had to tread a narrow line between asserting ourselves and not riling up the people to the point where there would be revolts. So that's what the job I had. For example, at first Hart Mountain didn't have a fence around it. Then the army decided to put up barbed wire and guard towers. Of course, this was important news. It had to be covered. But at the same time, we had the responsibility of not stirring up the anger of the people so that there might be an incident. That would have been very, very dangerous. 
And I think we managed to do that by playing the story right down the middle. The camp newspapers were printed in English and Japanese, and most of them stuck to routine events and feature stories. Sue Embry signed on as a reporter at the Manzanar Free Press soon after she got there. I enjoyed that because I got to walk around the camp, find out what things were going on. I've, people had finished building a fish pond and, and a rock garden, so I reported on that. And we had a sports editor who wrote about all the sports activities. And so things were beginning to settle down. People figured, well, we have to be here, so might as well go on with life. That's what we did. We got on with life, gaman, enduring the unbearable, persevering with dignity. The median age in the camps was 17, so a lot of kids were still in school. People arrived at Manzanar in the spring, before a formal school had been set up, parents and older teens stepped in. Matsue Watanabe remembers. We sat on the floor because there was no furniture and there weren't any books, but they did bring in some teachers. And so they did the best they could also without the supplies. When I think back, I think that was really something for them to take it into their own hands to take care of us that way. Over time, permanent schools were built in every camp. The teaching staff was primarily Caucasian, and the quality of instruction varied. Helen Hirano Christ remembers one incompetent teacher. The boys in class heckled her in Japanese. And she didn't like that at all. And she put up with it for a little while. And when it got really bad, then she put on her hat and stalked out the room and said, my father said, don't deal with a scum, and I won't. And she didn't ever come back again. Then came another white teacher. And she um, was a very poor speller, and her grammar wasn't very good. And she would write sentences on the blackboard, and these same boys would uh, correct her grammar and correct her, her spelling and uh, talk to her in Japanese. And she gave up on us, too. But there were good teachers. Some were incarcerees. Some came from nearby towns. Some were Quakers from far away who'd volunteered to live and work in the camps. Students and teachers often developed strong relationships. High school student Henry Miyatake was so inspired by a civics class that he made a close study of the U.S. Constitution and Bill of Rights. Then he wrote a 13-page paper. My term paper was American Democracy, What It Means to Me. It was a um, collection of all my frustrations about being in the camp <laughs> and all the things that caused me concern about was what was happening to us and um, everything about the treatment of blacks in the South. And I wrote all my frustrations in there. Miss Ammerman, his teacher, did not approve. She said, I, I'm very disappointed in you. So I, thought, gee, she'd be happier than Hick to see it, you know. And so I said, well, I, I don't think I did anything wrong. And, uh, and she said, well, unless you rewrite it, I'm not going to accept it. If Miss Ammerman didn't accept the paper, Henry would get an F in class. And if he got an F in class, school policy meant he would fail the semester. 
Henry thought it over, and he refused to rewrite his paper. Citing his First Amendment right of free speech, he said, After all, it's one of the four freedoms that Franklin Roosevelt says we're fighting for in this war. All that got Henry was a trip to the school office where he was told, You might be right in principle, but you're not right in terms of the school rules. Henry Miyatake was kicked out of high school. He didn't want his parents to find out, so he studied on his own in the school library. In later years, some former incarcerees had fond memories of certain teachers. May Sasaki credits one teacher, a Quaker, with kindling a lifelong passion. I had a leaning towards art, and so she taught me how to draw and uh, make pastel drawings. And she, she told me, draw what you see. And the only things I could see <laughs> were the barracks and the watchtowers and then some of the um, sky. Our skies used to be orange near the evening hours. I think she developed my love for art and my understanding that we were in this camp, but we were okay. Making art and doing craft projects became an essential way for many older Japanese Americans to keep busy and find meaning in their lives as prisoners. The younger generation had sports and school and social groups. The elders, the issei, found other ways to occupy themselves. Jane Oka's father made dozens of hand-carved painted birds. They're various birds, bird pins. And my father is the kind of guy that when he starts a project, he goes 100%. The bird pins were made to go on a lapel or blouse. Jane's father ordered a pack of bird cards to make sure he got the details right. He even purchased an Audubon bird book, you know, that big volume. I mean, that was my dad. He didn't have any money. I mean, they were getting $18 a month. All of the camps had bird pins. Delphine Hirasuna is the author of The Art of Gama, a book that documents the often exquisite crafts and artwork made in the camps despite the lack of materials. There were these little blocks of wood that they could get from salvaging fruit crates, and, and they would sketch a drawing of a bird on them, and then they would carve it out and paint it. And so there were probably thousands of bird pins in existence. At Tule Lake in California and Camp Topaz in Utah, a lot of the craft work involved seashells. Both of those camps were built over ancient seabeds, and they found lots of shells on the ground, seashells, and so people would bleach them and turn them into all kinds of table ornaments, into jewelry. But Delphine Hirasuna says a lot of the craft and artwork got left behind when people left camp. For some, it just didn't seem that valuable. This is a way to sort of pass the time, keep from going crazy. What everyone was saying was, this was our way to come on. To persevere with dignity could be exceptionally difficult in the prison camps. Let's return to the story of Aiko Herzig Yoshinaga, 
She was a 17-year-old who eloped with her boyfriend during the evacuation and went to camp with him and his family. Three months after arriving at Manzanar, Aiko learned she was pregnant. Access to healthy food in camp was limited, and Aiko worried about getting enough nutrition for the baby. Aiko's infant, Jerry, was born with an allergy to powdered milk given to babies in camp. Aiko couldn't afford the better milk that came in a can. Baby Jerry suffered terribly from stomach problems. She was frequently hospitalized. Most infants double their weight at six months. My child had not doubled her weight in a year. She was so sick. I was very angry and felt so responsible for my child. There's nothing, nothing at all that I could do about it. Many other things were beyond Aiko's control. In the summer of 1943, she got word that her father was gravely ill. He and Aiko's family were being held in a different camp than her, a place called Jerome in Arkansas. Aiko put in a request to transfer to Jerome to be with her father. It took several months, but finally she was allowed to go. There was one hitch. Aiko could take her baby girl, but not her husband. So, in December 1943, Aiko and her frail daughter set out on the 2,000-mile ride east. That train trip was a nightmare. I didn't have a seat reservation, so I had to sit on my suitcase for two of the four days. And my child had pneumonia or bronchitis at that time. Fortunately, on the third day, an American soldier took pity on me and let me have his seat. I was ever so grateful. Aiko arrived at Jerome just as her father was being rushed to the hospital in camp. He'd had a heart attack. So I grabbed my daughter and ran to the ambulance, and he just held her for a minute. Ten days later, after I arrived, on Christmas morning, he died. Aiko remained with her mother and siblings at the camp in Arkansas. Eventually, her husband Jake was allowed to join her, but months later, he got drafted and sent to Europe. In fact, the Japanese-American incarceration broke up many families. The structure of camp destroyed traditional family roles, and the young men in the camps, like Jake, began to get drafted. This created rifts among prisoners, as some chose to go to war and some chose to resist. Soon their loyalty to the U.S. would be tested in other ways, leading to more conflict. This is Order 9066. We're going to take a break now and come back on Memorial Day with four more episodes. I wanted to fight for the United States, the same as my classmates. Whether I lived or not didn't make any difference. It, it was, everybody was going to fight the war. I was angry, really angry. They, they kick us around and now you're going to have to go and prove that you're an American. That's it. No way! You know, from my feeling, it was totally wrong. That's coming up on Order 9066. I'm Pat Suzuki. Please help us spread the word about this series by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Order 9066 is produced by Kate Ellis and Stephen Smith and edited by Mary Beth Kirshner. The theme music is by Genji Saraisi. The production team includes Nathan Toby, Alex Baumhart, Andy Cruz, Hannah Mariyama, and Emerald O'Brien. Our technical director is Corey Schreppel. This podcast is a collaboration with the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. The team there includes Jennifer Jones, Noriko Sanefuji, and Valeska Hilbig. Special thanks to Densho, the Japanese American Legacy Project. Their mission is to preserve the testimonies of Japanese Americans who were unjustly incarcerated during World War II. Many of the oral histories used in this series were provided by Densho. If you want to learn more about the terminology we use to describe the incarceration and why we don't call it internment, go to our website, apmreports.org. You'll find links to other resources, too. While you're there, you can upload any photos of any objects you may have that are linked to the incarceration and see a gallery of what others have contributed. You can also find a link to the Smithsonian's online exhibition, Writing a Wrong. That's apmreports.org. Thanks for listening. Support for Order 9066 comes from the Terasaki Family Foundation, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Wallace Alexander Gerbodi Foundation, and Penelope Shala. This is APM, American Public Media.